Okay, well, that was a good introduction by our uh, Chief of Space Operations. Um, I'm glad you all had the opportunity to ask some questions of him. Um, now we're going to move on to our first panel discussion this morning. Uh, and our topic is the mission to protect and defend assets in space. Everyone in here has talked about this before. Look, space is a contested uh, domain. Uh, it's no longer peaceful. Um, our adversaries are contesting it using all means available, not just uh, kinetic, which is perhaps the most worrisome, uh, but non-kinetic as well. And I think it's important to recognize that um, we didn't choose this vector. Um, our adversaries did. Uh, but we've got to respond. So just like in any other operational domain, um, our forces have to be uh, to protect um, U.S. freedom of action. And what that demands is that the U.S. national security space community, particularly United States Space Command and the Space Force, consider new strategies, operational concepts, and associated technologies. Uh, so what this panel is going to do is to provide some insights regarding just what sort of technological solutions might be the most helpful and how this ties back to core mission imperatives, especially in an era where our adversaries not only not just waiting, but they're accelerating their activities uh, to compound the challenges that we all have to face. So um, I'm just tickled pink to have the folks that we have today on uh, stage uh, to my uh, left is uh, Major General Dave Rock Miller. Um, we go way back. Um, at my age, I go way back with everybody. Um, uh, but Rock is a Director of Operations Training and Force Development, uh, the J3, if you will, stationed out at Headquarters United States Space Command at uh, Peterson uh, Space Force Base in uh, Colorado. So um, welcome, Rock. Um, then next to uh, Rock is Ms. Stacy uh, Kubitschek the Vice President and General Manager for Mission Solutions at Lockheed Martin. Thanks so much, Stacy, for joining us. And then, of course, you all are very familiar with uh, General Chilton. Uh, thanks, Chili, for joining us on this panel, too. Um, so, um, again, just to put everyone in perspective, historically, and I know everyone in this room, I think, you know, I, don't, I don't see any real youngsters here, but, you know, it wasn't that long ago that you couldn't say space and offense in the same sentence together. Um, I have to share a little story. So I'm out at the Air Force Academy, and I'm giving a lecture to a, a group of cadets who are focusing on a space course. And at the end of my comments, one of the cadets asked a question about, um, hey, sir, do you envision there ever being uh, war in space? And immediately I went, well, of course. Well, one of, and I won't say who it is, I protect the innocent, but um, older guy, former astronaut, not chilly, um, <laughs> is sitting in the back of the room, and he's sort of a mentor for this class, and he jumps up and he goes, Dave, you can't say that. And I'm going, well, sure I can. First, it's an academic institution, and second, of course we're going to fight in space. But that's how inculcated... Everyone was, from a policy perspective, not to be able to talk like this. Now, of course, we don't want to see conflict extend to space. Um, but like I said, we are where we are with respect to our adversaries. So let me kick this off with a question to uh, uh, both Rock and uh, General Chilton. Um, the General uh, Saltzman's openly testified um, that certain Chinese capabilities <clears throat> are causing us concern. 
Um, I'm not going to go through a long list. You know what they are. And obviously, China's not the only actor. The Russians are out there, too. They're going the same way. Uh, but what do you all see as the most serious threat to our space assets? I mean, there's obviously the direct ascent ASATs, but there are other elements out there, too. What, what are your thoughts in that regard in terms of threats? Oh, sir. Um, well, thanks, sir, for the opportunity. Uh, you are old, and it's good to see you again. Um, I, was, I was remembering the discussion you and General Chilton had where you were talking about um, that General Chilton, he gave you your first uh, either samurai or check ride or something. And I've got my former weapons school instructor sitting right there, and I have marginally effective in my head right now. So <laughs> if I speak at a more deliberate pace, it's because I don't want to hear, Jesus, you can do better than that. Um, so uh, I, I guess I'll answer that question this way. So when U.S. Space Command thinks about protection and defense, we think about that as a two-party problem. Uh, certainly the protection and defense of U.S. and if required or directed allied and commercial space systems is a primary task requirement for us laid out in the Unified Command Plan. The President has given us that mission. All of us have a mission to protect and defend the Joint Force. So I'm going to answer it in two ways. Um, there is probably no single threat vector that um, warrants preparation um, planning, uh, capability development, concept development, and where needed test demonstration and, and operational um, demonstration over one another. Um, I will highlight a few concerns on the protection and defense of U.S. allied and if directed commercial systems this way. Um, as the CSO, I think, rightly illuminated, the awareness of the cyber threat vector as demonstrated previously in Ukraine by the Russians um, the EW threat vectors, which we've been aware of for quite some time, but you've seen them most prominently against, uh, or at least discussed openly, which is a new thing, by Russian Federation uh, leaders uh, focusing on commercial, not just uh, U.S. systems. Um, those obviously represent a concern today, and those are things that uh, we obviously work through and plan through, and frankly, with some of your companies plan in detail with to ensure that we have an ability to respond. Um, the direct ascent is a big concern. I think uh, that is the most, um, from a destructive capability standpoint, that is the most disconcerting of what we've seen probably over the past two years. Incredibly irresponsible, reckless, to the point where we, the United States government, through U.S. Space Command to NASA, were the ones waking up the Russian astronauts to get to the safe escape within the International Space Station. Um, irresponsible on many levels. So we get concerned about that because, as the chief said, certainly 1,500 pieces of debris, we're tracking more than that um, over time. It continues to be a problem, and it also represents the challenge that we talk about with sustainability of the domain. Um, uh, if, if, God forbid, a U.S. aircraft gets shot down or if we have to shoot down another aircraft, immediate results onto the ground, right? You get to see that, eliminated from the battle space. These are things that are going to last for years, and depending on the orbit, they're going to last for decades and we're going to have to contend with them. Uh, and I thought that the um, highlight of the um, maneuvers that the ISS has to take and the conjunction concerns that we have was particularly noteworthy. Um, that is a big, big concern. Not the only threat vectors, though. Um, I, I recommend everyone look at it. We wring we our hands often about the intelligence community sometimes and the challenge with classification. Look at the DIA Security Challenges 2022 report. Um, it is very thorough, in my view, and a great fact of document of what we assess our principal potential adversaries in the PRC, 
particularly the PLA and the Russian Federation have in terms of capability. In that vein, if you keep reading onto the next page, the threat from space in my second answer is into and from space, we have a responsibility both as a U.S. Space Force Guardian but also as the J-3 U.S. Space Command to prepare for threats to the Joint Force. And the threat to the Joint Force is very concerning to me. Um, if you look at, and again, read this document, it's also reflected to some extent in the National Defense Strategy. If you look at what the PRC, for example, has built in their C4 ISR network, it is a network that is built to find, fix, and kill maritime and air forces in the Pacific. And we can have all the resilience you want that will do nothing about that problem set. So um, if you continue reading to the last page, it's artful how they did this. It actually talks about research um, and testing of the PRC focused on space-based kinetics. That's delivery from space to the ground. And the example provided that you all remember from uh, almost about 18 months ago now is the fractional orbital bombardment demonstration that the PRC did. Um, those things concern me greatly. Um, our joint force in particular, it's axiomatic to say that we are thoroughly integrated into the joint force um, from a space perspective and have been for decades. People do not realize how fundamental that integration is. The joint force is sized, reliant on space capabilities being there. The ability, the changes the Commandant of the Marine Corps made in the force element relies on what? The ability to mass, deliver precision fires, communicate over the horizon, find your targets before um, the adversary finds you. None of that can get done without space. So it's a two-piece two problem when we talk about protection and defense. Although I am absolutely worried and we focus on with the Space Force, but all the services, protection and defense of U.S. allied and if directed commercial systems. I'm also very concerned about um, the protection and defense of the Joint Force um, from what is increasingly pernicious and capable, frankly, um, C4ISR capability of the PRC, but also the Russian Federation. So, Okay, thanks for that. John Shulton, your thoughts on yeah, particular Dave, uh, threats? Yeah, so the threats to our, our space capabilities, I, I'll, I'll kind of go back to the fact that uh, the Chinese spent the 1990s studying how we fight wars. And you're one of the people they studied for sure and how you planned operations for Desert Storm and then Iraqi freedom. And I think one of the things you targeted early on was you targeted um, the communications capability of strategic level to talk to the operational level to talk to the tactical level of our adversaries and disconnected those completely which left the tactical level wondering what they should do next and the operational level blind. So um, the Chinese said bluntly in 98, we can't take on the U.S. force on force, so we're going to go after that ability to do operational command and control and push it down to the tactical level. And so if I were them today with the capabilities they have, um, in a conflict I would want to immediately blind U.S. commanders by taking away anything they could get from a reconnaissance aspect from space, and I would make them um, unable to communicate with their operational level commands and with their tactical forces and theaters. So um, blind and mute all U.S. air, land, and naval forces in the area of operation. And I think that almost extends to Hawaii now in the Western Pacific. Um, and then I would want immediate feedback before I took my next step as to whether or not I was successful or if I failed before I took the next step in my operation. Cyber is certainly important, but cyber is hard to test and prove that it's going to work. 
I think cyber efforts will certainly be used by our adversaries, but I don't think they will rely on them to cross the streets. Uh, I think more likely they'll use them to break the American will at home to support the defense of Taiwan in that particular scenario by making life uncomfortable for the average citizen in the U.S. Today, ground-based directed energy, or, or however we apply directed energy from the Chinese, however they might do it, does not prevent, present a risk to some key capabilities we have in the geosynchronous orbit. They certainly can disrupt, likely. Uh, I don't know if they can destroy or not, but they can make things difficult in the far LEO constellations. Um, so if I'm going to blind and I'm going to make mute U.S. forces, I'm going to rely on direct ascent ASATs and co-orbiting ASATs to go after those key nodes on orbit while I'm simultaneously doing a cyber attack to try to hopefully disrupt the command and control elements in the terrestrial domain. And, um, and then I, and I, I would do that because I need immediate feedback on whether or not I'm successful before I proceed. So I would rate direct ascent co-orbital as the most serious threats, followed by directed energy and cyber uh, attack. Well, that's very good um, and leads to kind of a follow-on discussion in the context of how do we best counter that, which rapidly gets us into a, uh, a discussion of uh, preemptive attack and means to negate those physical means, perhaps using, uh, you know, non-lethal effects, which gets us to the cyber discussion, uh, which is kind of interesting because to, to take what you said is the if I understand it right, um, what they can be assured of measuring um, is lethal direct ascent ASATs. Right. It, it is just like we've, some of us have talked about before, if, you, if you're going to go against an adversary, let's take country names off of it, and you're going into adversary X, and your physical force is reliant upon the success of a cyber op, you have to have the feedback. Uh, either that or a hell of a lot of trust before you put your pink body in the in the in the threat space. Um, well, and you got to practice with it for commanders to have confidence that the effects will be achieved. And I don't see much of that happening, frankly, on either side. I think there's also a deterrent piece here too mm -hmm. uh, that we ought to think about. Um, uh, I, I would suggest that we have been we as a as a nation and as a military have been too quick to dismiss, dismiss lethal options, which just gives aid and comfort to our adversaries, going, well, they're not going to do that, as opposed to increasing the uncertainty in our adversaries' minds that, well, we just might. Uh, but that's another discussion. But thanks for those insights and, and getting the, uh, the, the, the thought process uh, going. Rock, uh, kind of a sort of a follow-on, but obviously – all of what's important about what we were just discussing uh, is a whole notion of space situational awareness. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, General Saltzman uh, talked about it in his, uh, in his C notes, but what are some of the key areas that we need to focus energy and uh, resources on to realize the kind of <clears throat> space situational awareness that's necessary to assure us that we got a good handle on what's going on? Yeah, that's, um, that's a good question. There's, I think the CSO mentioned, uh, talked very eloquently about it. I need to be a little more simple uh, in my view, but also 
my boss, General Dickinson, the commander of U.S. Space Command, has made this his number one priority for closing gaps as well. Um, and the reason is um, pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, there used to be a phrase, you know, where 90% you know, of SA is knowing what the hell's going on. Um, I'll be honest with you, the, the network that we built, um, the, it, is, it is entirely, <laughs> you know, rearward looking was the term that was used by the CSO. It is based off of observations uh, in the past to predict likely orbital destination in the future. That's why everything comes back with the element set associated with it um, and an uncertainty volume, frankly, associated with it because a lot can happen. Um, as a result of that, I'm, I'm reminded back when General Chilton actually was the Air Force Space Command Commander, there's, there's three things that distilled when he put out a, a study on what we need to do to improve space surveillance at the time. I think there's three things that drive to a fourth. Uh, the first is custody. Um, we do not have the level of custody we need in order to provide a level of accuracy associated with either indications of warning, um, threat determination, hostile intent, and then ultimately, if needed, the ability to target. Um, we are largely based on the next step, the next C, which is capability, relying on systems that were built in prototype based off two principal phenomenologies. The one is optical, which is sort of measuring light um, reflected off of a given satellite, and you can get a lot of information from that. I don't want to diminish it. Um, the second is radar, which you'll get an ac more accurate, uh, obviously depending on the radar, but you get a more accurate position state vector of where it is. Um, again, where that primary focus of our network has been derived from is associated with dual mission systems that were largely built around the missile warning network to defend the United States. And the optical sites that we have, because we sometimes do people too many favors by publishing too much about our systems, um, are in a place where it sometimes can be difficult for them to get the information that they need. So capability is the second one. Um, an optical signature of metric or metric soy data does not provide me the, the capability uh, that I need to determine threat, indication to warning, intent, and if needed, the capability to target for disruption. So you're going to have to improve the capability there. The last piece um, in terms of the three C's that drive to the fourth is capacity. Um, we have, um, we are in the process of shifting from, and I'm very excited to hear about the success about the Space Development Agency's um, launch, but we are shifting, in the process from shifting from a permissive uh, force design, um, that was what I grew up on, to a warfighting force design. We are not there yet. We're in the process of getting there. And as a result, capacity was not the principal force determinant the ability to fight uh, in the domain, that was not the principal determinant. And it was really based off of efficiency. What is the capability that we can build to cover down on the missions with the least impact possible? And decisions were made. When you look at the first missile warning architecture that we started with for ground-based missile warning, there were two more radars that covered the southern hemisphere. Well, they covered parts of the southern hemisphere. One at El Dorado and one at Robbins. And those were shut down because of cost. So when you start talking about capacity, I have to have enough to be able to survive in conflict, but also deliver me the indications, warning, targeting, information, capabilities, and intent so that I can inform national security decision makers about options that we have. And that capacity is something else that our, our focus is on. Those three drive one thing, and that is coherence and battle management. Um, right now, the tools that we have don't yet, and Cheryl Sussman talked about decision support aids. 
they, they do not yet provide um, battle management at the right levels in order to effectively assess those things and then quickly develop options that can outpace your adversary. Um, I'm, I'm with General Sosma on this. I'm not really interested in the name of it. It needs to be delivered. And if you deliver the first three without driving towards coherent battle management, you didn't really give me much because I can't use it. Um, so I think those are the four C's that um, I focus on. Um, the space domain awareness integrated capabilities document is, is much more nuanced in the approach, but those are the things that I focus on um, as the primary things that we need to get, and we need to get right fast. Cool. Uh, real quick follow-on here. The uh, budget has $18 million in it um, for commercial space assistance in terms of data for space domain awareness. W can you comment on the, yep. the relevance and uh, Absolutely. importance of that? I think General Berto has some comments about Space Force, but um, so we absolutely rely on and um, we have a joint commercial um, operations uh, underneath U.S. Space Command that relies on and integrates at the unclassified level many of the systems that some of the folks in this audience bring together. Um, it's a best athlete competition um, based off of the needs that we have to cover some of those gaps that I mentioned in terms of location because if you're using terrestrial-based sensors, location does matter. Um, and it also highlights best of breed in terms of their performance and capability to get after it. Um, to, to, to wit, I get updates literally unclass on my cell phone for threats of interest that I'm concerned about from that center. And we're able to measure those against what we have um, on the other, uh, the classified realm in order to make assessments of what that is. Obviously, coherence would bring those two together and produce one solution um, at varied levels of classification in order to deliver not just the information of what, but also so what and what next. That's what the coherence and battle management delivers that we need to get to. I will note that it's not just the 18 million for commercial. Space Force is getting after this. Um, if you're going to get custody, um, I think your study showed the same thing, sir. You're going to have to go on orbit in order to maintain custody. You're going to have to have a system that is providing you that from on orbit. So I think uh, we are in the process of, obviously, we've done great work with the geospatial, uh, geogras geosynchronous space situational awareness platform, GSAP. Silent Barker will get ready to get fielded at the end of the year or launched at the end of the year. And for precision in some of that specific um, information that we talked about, Things like the deep space advanced radar capability will provide us a level of capability. So I don't want to make it sound like it's not getting attention. It is getting attention. What I'm simply saying is the, the service, you know, the, the air chief used to say, hey, I'm building the Air Force for four chiefs from now, right? General Salzman's building the Space Force for three or four chiefs from now. My boss's time horizon is the next year or two. So, uh, you know, I'm not really interested in how hard it is. I want results. <laughs> and that's the focus that we have to have. Typical COCOM co there. Yes, yeah. sir. <laughs> it's easy to do sitting up here now with the mic on. <laughs> Send us money. Exactly um, right. Yeah, Stacey, let me bring you into the conversation. Obviously, um, we just heard that um, space situation awareness has got a lot of demands on data. Could you talk a little bit about how software solutions may be assisting and some of the challenges that Rock's facing? Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, you know, when we start thinking about data, the, the exciting thing for me is we've talked a lot about the different assets and the different things, and actually, General Salzman, I appreciated his comments this morning. It's got to be the holistic picture. It's got to be the end-to-end, -end, and that's really where data starts coming into play. But to your point, there's a lot of data coming in, right? You were talking even about the 18 million going towards just commercial data alone. 
So data is only as good as what you can do with it and the intelligence that can be created with it. So if we've got a bunch of data and we're not able to actually do anything with it, it doesn't make us any better. It doesn't allow us to uh, defend against the threats, the increasing threats that we have any better. It doesn't allow us uh, to operate any quicker, get shorten that sensor to shooter timeline that we talk about. It does not help us the way we need to. So software is really a critical component for that. So how can software be a critical component? There's so many ways. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things is AI and ML cannot be underestimated uh, in what it can help to provide. Now, I'm going to caveat that with AI and ML can't do everything. There's still a very critical component with a human on a loop uh, for some of those hard things that we still need to absolutely go do. But our resources aren't unlimited, right? So allowing software to do some of those uh, things that can help to do, do, help to get some of that information to the warfighter quicker where we can is absolutely a good uh, aspect there. Another thing, uh, really, this, that's more from a reactionary standpoint, and I think about sitting with the operators at the different operations sites, you know, and what they need to be able to make decisions quickly and to be able to do that effectively without 17 screens that they have to go decipher all that data with, right? Um, but then you flip that, and how can we get ahead of the threat, too? And that's where software can be really, really critical as well when we think about predictive modeling. Um, we do a lot of things with digital twins. So when you start thinking, we were talking a lot about uh, missile uh, warning and capabilities, and those are some legacy systems. So when we're modernizing those systems, how can we use some of that predictive modeling to say, what's the threat going to look like in one year, two years, three years, five years, six months from now? It's changing that quick. So how can we use those software tools to help to prepare our warfighters for what they need to be able to do and be able to make those decisions as well very effectively? Oh, very good. Um, yeah. Wonderful insights. Uh, separate but related uh, topic, one of the things that General Saltzman's argued for is that, that Space Force needs to deny first mover advantage on orbit. Uh, and so far, one of the ways the Space Force has decided to proliferate and disaggregate future systems is sort of the manner in which he's going to approach that uh, challenge. Um, so, uh, Chile, be interested in your thoughts about how that disaggregation and the ability to maneuver actually deters our adversaries. I think it's an important part of an overall strategy, the disaggregation and proliferation. Um, it, and I also like the fact that it promises, and, and General Saltzman refers to this, there's a promise that it could flip the cost-imposing equation to uh, if you've got enough low-expensive um, satellites spread out in orbit and a resilient architecture, it's going to take a lot of anti-satellite capability to take it out, and it's always good to have it be more expensive to defeat you than cheap to defeat you. Um, so I think that's a, that's a big plus. Um, but really, the whole idea of proliferation disaggregation is a defensive part of a deterrence equation. And history teaches that that's never enough. You know, witness the Maginot line. Um, so I think it's part of a deterrent strategy, but that deterrent strategy also needs to have the offensive threat um, signaled to the adversary to deter them from attacking. And, and I would say uh, to effectively deter, and then of course win if deterrence fails. Uh, the adversary's got to doubt that they can effectively take out all the capabilities that our joint force relies on to conduct operations in the Western Pacific from space. So they have, they have to doubt that they can achieve that. They have to doubt that they can blind our operational level from the tactical level 
and cut off their communications. And they, and they must also believe that we have the capability and will, and it would be best if we could demonstrate that, to hold immediately their space architecture at risk that they depend on to maintain control of their forces within the first and second island chain, to threaten our carrier battle groups as they sortie from the eastern Pacific to the western Pacific, to protect and or to defeat their ability <coughs> to attack our air, land, and naval bases in the area of operation. They've got to They've got to believe that we will go after them and take that away from them. Now, whether we will or not is a choice that a president and a commanders will make at the time. But from a deterrence perspective, they need to, they need to know that this is what we're going to go after. And, and if they're counting on that to effectively win the conflict in the Western Pacific, it's not going to be there for them. No, that's very good. Rock, you want to chime in there at all? Great job, sir. <laughs> um, I'll add uh, just one point, I guess. Um, so the the challenge that we look at any of these adversaries, potential adversaries, PRC, Russia, or whoever, um, remember that in in context, this will be a if we are called upon, this will be a U.S. military response. It won't be just a space force response. Um, now, to General Chilton's point, I 100% agree that we absolutely have to get, you know, I, I was thinking back, it was like two weeks ago, I saw a feed on, I don't have Twitter, but my son does, um, and he was telling me that, you know, hey, Dad, looks like the Super Geo 6 was accepted. Why are we telling our adversaries that? But that's one question. But separate from that, there's a reason it's called Geo 6. You guys know what that is, right? It's the 6-1. Um, and the reason I bring that up is to General Chilton's point, it underscores it. I mean, if you're counting on one hand the amount of assets you got to go to fight with, you're not ready to fight. And as a result, it is essential, it is fundamental that we build resilience into the key critical mission sets that the U.S. military, the entirety of the joint force and our allies will depend on. The SDA tranche for COM is one. Uh, missile warning, missile tracking obviously is similar. I frankly wish we wouldn't tell you how many we were putting up there, but um, I think it's good that we proliferate to the extent that we demonstrate we can take a punch. Think about history as well as a couple other things, too, particularly about regimes that are uncertain about the scale of escalation and the pace at which they do it. Signaling early with what testing the will of the adversary is important. If we can't fight through that initial salvo or whatever that demonstration is and demonstrate some level of resilience that we're going to be able to not just take it, but respond, as General Chilton said, then it's not credible. And to General Salsa's point, it's not a combat credible force presentation. So I think that that's it. I would lastly say that um, your joint forces get after this. Um, earlier uh, in, in the fall, we spent three hours as the every three-star in the joint force focused on a war game in particular on space, how we would protect and defend and deliver capabilities to the joint force. Outbriefed to the chairman and the, the entirety of the service chiefs. That has never happened before. And every COCOM had to show up ready to talk about what their role was and how they integrated into this. Any solutions, operating concepts, uh, plans that we develop, we'd be, it would be a disservice to the Space Force to only talk to the Space Force. We look to Cyber Command, SOCOM. I spent more time with the Cybercom and SOCOM J3s than almost any other J3 other than pick up. 
Um, and it's because of the partnerships that are being developed. So uh, we will take, at the time of our choosing, whatever the response action that we think appropriate. Um, but it is not something that we're sitting on our hands waiting for. And I want to assure, you know, General Chilton, we, we're getting after it. We are in a transition from a permissive force design to a warfighting force design. When we transition and as we transition, those operational plans and concepts will evolve. Right now, they're appropriate for where we are. And in fact, General Burt hates it. I'm constantly trying to pull capability to the left and ask for it now. And she really hates it when I do that. But that's, that's my job. So. Hey, all it takes is money, right? That's right. Um, that's right. Let me, let me pull on that string a little bit more um, with respect to proliferated satellite constellations. They may, in fact, remove uh, the vulnerability of, you know, a handful of fat, juicy targets to, to General quote, General Hyten. Um, but the, the Chinese have embraced the whole notion of systems-based warfare. Yep. So what is there, this is for um, uh, all of you, but let me give Stacy the opportunity to, to jump in here. What, what else should we be looking at in the context of systems to harden as we uh, look to prepare ourselves to go against a threat who's got a variety of different avenues they might attack us on? No, thank you for that question. Um, I'm actually flip a little bit. You were just talking about the importance of the resiliency in actual space, right, um, in that domain. Um, and I'm going to pull in the ground side of it, actually, uh, from that perspective for where I would say we need to focus. And why would I say that? You know, actually, several senior leaders have been coming. We were just talking about it. General Salzman made a few comments around it this morning on ground and the importance of the resilience on the ground and <clears throat> how we protect that. Um, I think it just brings to light that as we continue to add things, yes, absolutely, it's needed from a resilience standpoint, not just in space, but air, land, sea, cyber, all those um, need to be uh, resilient. And they're all becoming part of a bigger network. Um, it, we are, everything is becoming a node on that network at this point, right? And so how are we hardening each of those pieces? And when everything from a data standpoint is um, getting passed down through that ground and through different avenues, we have various clouds, different levels of cloud environments that we have now, those are the capabilities that if we're going to be able to trust the data and also be able to operate quickly uh, with that data, we're going to need to be able to harden that. Now, hardening sometimes comes at a price, right? You know, when you start talking about cyber and you want to harden everything at every level, you're adding a lot of latency to the system. We can't always afford latency in the system. So it's a prioritization as well of where and what we want to harden from that standpoint. But I think ground is absolutely a critical component that we need to really focus on hardening. Yeah, very good. Rock, Chile, anything to add? Go ahead, Rock. Uh, yes, uh, agree. Uh, the, the ground component is important. I mean, all the space link, if you're looking at the system that General Salsa was talking about, space link and ground, all of it's got to be done. Uh, two parts I would add to that. Um, so in ground, we often talk about the C2 center, 100%, got to have that hardened. Um, but uh, the th threats and risks that you've seen but most publicized lately were actually with terminals and the vulnerability that they have as well. Um, so we can't forget about, you know, the joint force. You know, typically we have a pacing lead for the deployment of a capability from a terminal. The Space Force will take that, and then it gets disseminated to joint force never as quickly as we want. You have to have this infrastructure for hardening all the way down to the terminal to receive the data, or it doesn't get there. You can do all the C2 and command and control and release of whatever that warning, surveillance, targeting information is. If we can't get it to the user, it, it, it's all for naught. Um, the last piece in terms of hardening is, remember, the, the resilience piece is certainly the number. What's more important, and one of the big lessons, certainly logistics was a big one you take out of 
the observations from Ukraine, the capability of people, particularly the will and moral courage of the Ukrainians to develop new approaches to defend that were frankly not written. They're, they're getting trained on capabilities that outpace how, how quickly we train our folks. Um, and I think that this is something that we got to keep focused on. Right? It's a mindset and a culture, not just a capability. So as you're developing the TTPs, as you're powering down C2 from the operational level to the tactical edge, empowering those warfighters um, to be able to, these guardians to be able to talk to the user at the same time and have an accountability to the partner that they're protecting, defending, or whatever, it's also part of that. Uh, and the, the, you know, the CSO is focused on developing an operational test and training infrastructure for a reason. This, this, if you think we're just going to have it, it's going to, numbers are enough, it never works that way. Um, and defense alone, as General Chilton said, I mean, you know, one of the things everybody should be taking out of this Ukraine conflict is Clausewitz is relevant, and so is Thucydides. Um, the, the, these defense-only approaches are going to culminate at some point. You can't parry blows for that long against a persistent adversary. You must react and overcome. And the TTPs to be able to shift rapidly and find opportunities and exploit them, that's also part of the mindset. So we got to harden our warfighters, our guardians as well, and they got to be thinking and training in a way that it's second nature, not something that's a first idea come when the adversary is in your face. Dave, I want to pile on what Stacy said as well. I agree with everything Rock said. Um, but, yeah, the ground infrastructure is critical to our space capabilities. And, you know, I, I think a, you need to take a real hard look at where are we single strength and how, do we, how are we going to back up those capabilities because we are going to be attacked, whether it's by cyber or kinetic. And, and so uh, I, I'd use the nuclear deterrent system as, as a model. I don't know if we need to go to that extreme. But, you know, when the president gives an order we, to use a nuclear weapon, there's not just one path for that order to go out. There's multiple paths uh, on multiple different capable capabilities, some hardline, some RF, and some many we can't talk about. But, but the important thing is there's no one single point or even a few that can be taken out and prevent that message from going out. That's, that's probably the ultimate extreme. Somewhere between single string and there is probably where you know, our Space Force needs to be at least thinking about how we're going to operate it in, in a degraded um, ground infrastructure. And then the last point I'd make, and I haven't heard it mentioned yet today, really, and that is none of this matters if, if the services don't buy the user equipment. The Space Force doesn't buy the user equipment. It's the services that buy it. So, um, you know, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines need to have updated, capable, flexible for changing software um, and, and capabilities in the future so that, you know, it doesn't just work one way. We can change the software, change the crypto, and get the messages through. That's a responsibility of the other services, and they need to step out and make sure they have the proper user equipment or the space capabilities are for not. Well, very good. Um, he, lots more questions here, but I do want to conserve some time for the uh, audience to jump in here. So let's shift to that phase right now. Uh, and um, uh, again, any questions from the audience for our panelists? I think we got mics floating around. And please identify who you are first, please. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Steve Jordan Tomaszewski from the Aerospace Industries Association. Um, question about uh, commercial uh, protection of uh, commercial space systems. So um, uh, is Space Command today currently postured, you know, if directed, to protect 
commercial space systems. And along those lines, what, what, what is Space Command doing to kind of deepen ties with industry? Thanks. Yes. <laughs> wow. uh, so I think we are. I think, um, no, I think we are. I know we are. Um, we do consider, I mean, it's part of the challenge that we were given and the tasks given to my boss, you know, directly from the president. And uh, making sure that if directed, we're able to do these things. So it's not only something we've got to prepare for, it's something we've got to actually demonstrate and capability to do. Um, a number of things. So the, the command, and Space Force has a role in this too, uh, absolutely, has released a commercial integration strategy designed to build in options and availability for just protection, but partnership from the ground up with commercial systems. So we understand from a resiliency perspective what they can offer. Similarly, have a path that's established, rehearsed, and nominal for provision of indications and warning if there is a concern that they have. Um, our main venue for doing that is out of the Combined Forces Space Component Command out of Vandenberg Air Force Base and their Commercial Integration Center for the operationalization of that. Um, but we're looking to expand it, and that's been a focus of the commander really for the last year. Um, we see that um, there is go no matter how this shakes out in terms of force design, and, and the CSO said the service is working on one, there will always be a role and a necessity for us to have commercial partners as a part of our forces. And what we are trying to get away from is a crisis happens and that's the first time someone's called <laughs> and make sure that they're there. I will say, and it's, you know, obviously some commercial partners want to be more clear about their participation than others. Um, they participate in exercises. They have POCs who are fully cleared to the things they need to be cleared to. They understand what capabilities that we have. So I think we are well postured, if directed, by the Secretary um, to take the, take that. But I think at the same time, we're trying to build in more left of the crisis so that we have normalized that partnership um, and clearly established where we can surge capability and support where needed, but at the same time have the intellect as a part of our planning uh, and, and um, operational concept development up front. One in the center over here. While we're waiting for that, can I ask you a question, Stacy? Of course. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to speak for all of industry, but what is your expectation of, of the U.S. Space Force and U.S. Space Command? Do you expect them to defend your satellites and your ground infrastructure? I think it's a partnership. I think um, we need to also, as industry, take a step back um, and reflect on where can we also help and meet halfway. I don't think it's an all or nothing, uh, to be quite honest. I think it's more of how can we um, harden our systems? What can we drive protection into our systems to actually help to provide the intelligence there as well and meet halfway? If we depend on, it's, if we depend on one or the other, I don't think we're ever going to get there, nor are we going to get there at the speed. You're talking right. about the speed, right? We're not going to get there at the speed that we need to by doing that. So I think it's absolutely a partnership where we need to be looking at innovative ways that we can insert things into our assets and our capabilities that we're putting into space because we're taking responsibility when we do that as well. Um, so I think it's definitely a two-way street. Thanks. I think that's a good point to clarify. There are levels. So you say protection. Everybody thinks like defenders on orbit probably. There are levels of coordination here that are important. Indications and warning of a cyber concern of one of our industry partners directly impacts the U.S. government in many, many ways. That may be one way at which we're partnering, and that's the whole purpose of expanding that partnership to many, many more uh, industry representatives, but also allies and partners, candidly. Um, this is a we problem, not a me problem for U.S. Space Command, and 
I think our approach has been one of recognize the opportunities early, bake in the solutions and the coordination so that it's ready to go, and don't wait until the crisis occurs before you do it. it it's not going to all be um, Star Wars or Star Trek protection level, right? One. It's going to be something else. So. Okay, last question. Good afternoon, sir, ma'am, second Lieutenant Gabrielle Tapascio, fresh, bright-eyed young person, as the general said earlier. Um, we've spoken a lot about fostering these relations, and we've spoken a lot about fostering these relations with commercial, um, the commercial sector. And I do wonder whether how, how are we deepening these relations with other departments, such as the Department of State, since space diplomacy has become this new and niche exciting thing? And I wonder what developments have been made by the Space Force in helping the Department of State in doing so. Thank you. Why is everybody looking at me? <laughs> I can, I can, I'll give a little history here. I know uh, Secretary Frank Rose... Uh, who I, I know, he worked this problem really hard for his eight years, I believe he was working on the State Department, uh, to try to get norms established, try to get people to yep. agree on norms. And as was mentioned earlier, once you, and we're not there yet, but it, you know, it's a worthy effort to, to push that through because once you have that, as someone mentioned earlier, I believe it was General Saltzman, then you, when someone violates a yeah. norm, you have the ability to do, you know, throw a demarshmallow at them, we used to call them. But that's the State Department's, you know, sending a message that, hey, you signed up to this, you violated it. And that's, that diplomatic pressure matters. It does. It really matters. And so, um, you know, I'm a, a big fan of coming to some level of consensus on rules of the road, if you will, in peacetime. Of course, they all go out the window, as we know, in any conflict once the balloon goes up. But I, I think it's really an important way to help deterrence by holding uh, nations accountable for their behavior in space and enabling the, the State Department to fulfill their uh, capability to exercise one of the key elements of national power, the D and dime, if you will, diplomacy. Yeah. I'm going to add to that a little bit, since you didn't want to go first. <laughs> I, I want to also add, it's a great question that you asked, but the other piece, too, um, that I'd like to just encourage to think about is an international piece as well, right? Because then you start adding in all the international capabilities, and there is a lot of international focus, whether it be on cyber capabilities, even the ground capabilities, satellite communication capabilities, and how that's all going to work. And it's, again, getting back to the partnership, it's going to be a bigger picture that's going to really make us more effective um, yeah. as we continue to move forward. So just another component of it to think about as well. I know General Burt wants to comment. i got to say one thing first. <laughs> <laughs> I told you she was going to get mad at me. Um, so I think it's good. The tenants of responsible behavior that the Secretary released last month are a start. Those were coordinated with the State Department. I had the opportunity to be in an event with um, uh, the UN ambassador. She is tracking these personally. Uh, General Burr will talk about some of the allied efforts to push those through. Um, you got to think about something. Just in the last three years, well, three plus now, that the Space Force has been in place, we have seen, depending on whether it's an independent service an Air Force that now has a dedicated space arm within it or a joint command established within that partner nation. We are in the teens now of nations and partners who are working through how they're going to organize in order to not just protect and defend, but to deliver capability to their forces as part of a unit. Every one of those pieces, um, we're partnering right now for access to some capability, space domain awareness capability from the COCOM that's present in the European theater. We've got to work through NATO to get that done, and the um, Assistant Secretary of State 
and that team actually works those partnerships for us in addition to the ambassadors at the local level. I think we're getting to a place where we're normalizing that. Um, we have a political advisor who constantly has an update back to the team on where we are on both our planning to make sure that we have the access we need with our allies and partners, the operations, that the coalition is strong, and it, you know, we have an, a multinational operation right now that we execute, and then simultaneously are setting up for the future for where we're heading. I think from a COCOM perspective, the integration is very, very good. Um, I do think um, we are in a place where, because of the tenants of responsible behavior, the advocacy we've received from a certain number of allies as a result of U.S. leadership and the establishment of those services, I think you're going to start to see a bow wave form of like-minded nations who recognize the shift that um, these nations, it's in the national defense strategy, the PRC and the Russians want to make to the international order and the value of norms and tenets of responsible behavior to preserving that international order. It's not just about war fighting, it's more about escalation management and preventing miscalculation. So I think it's good. The service, I'll let General Burt talk about. Now, that's a great question. So what I would say is, one, uh, we just, General Saltzman, very similarly to General Dickinson, just got his own Department of State political advisor here uh, in the last four months. So she's on staff and working. So that's been a great add to the staff. Secondly, we do have guardians, blue tapers, sitting in State Department, working these norms of behavior and engaging. Uh, the third piece I would say is this discussion of uh, we had Shriver War Game uh, last week, and we went to the CSO talk to you about the coalition outbrief. State Department was there for the entire outbrief uh, and talked about all the efforts they're working towards in the norms of behavior. The United Kingdom is leading those efforts uh, in the United Nations uh, on behalf of all the like-minded nations uh, that were there at Shriver last week. So uh, a great initiative. Uh, as we stand up service components, and you heard earlier the chief say that we've stood them up in Indo-PACOM, uh, U.S. Forces Korea and in CENTCOM, you now will also have that security cooperation that's happening in the COCOM with a space guardian working with the, you know, the folks on the joint staffs at each of the combatant commands to do that security cooperation for space and to continue to improve those norms uh, for military sales, any kind of operations or sharing agreements we would have with other countries. So I think to your point, Absolutely, norms are important. How we get after uh, involving ourselves with State Department and making sure this is a whole of government. General Miller mentioned earlier, uh, this is a whole of military. It's a whole of government as well, and State Department is critical in that.